helping disciple makers ignite a movement locally and globally. This is the Disciple First Podcast. Now, here's your host, Craig Etheridge. Well, welcome, everybody, to the Disciple First Podcast. This is a podcast by disciple makers and for disciple makers. And my name is Craig Etheridge. I'm your host here. And thank you so much for your download today. And be sure that you go to iTunes and give us a positive rating if this podcast is beneficial to you. Today, we have with us on the podcast, Greg Ogden, who's a uh, recently retired, or as he would say, redeployed uh, from professional church leadership. Most recently, Greg was the executive pastor of discipleship at Christ Church of Oak Brook in Illinois, in the Chicago area. He was before that the director of doctoral ministry program at Fuller Theological Seminary. And Greg has written uh, many, many books, uh, Unfinished Business, Returning Ministry to the People of God, which is put out in 2003, but probably most notably, Discipleship Essentials, A Guide to Building Your Life in Christ by InterVarsity Press, and many people use Discipleship Essentials as their curriculum for disciple-making in their church. Uh, Greg has been married to Lily for 43 years. He has one daughter with her husband or practicing pediatricians in Salt Lake City, Utah. And uh, Greg and I have had an opportunity to hang out a couple of times uh, this last year and get to know each other a little bit better. And man, Greg, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for the invitation. Joy to be with you. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we both love talking about uh, disciple-making, and so I'm thrilled about what we're going to see uh, happening today. So um, let's start off with this. Um, What is uh, the mission of the church? Well, that's a pretty easy question. That's kind of a softball uh, to be thrown at me here. Uh, Obviously, Jesus said, go and what? Make disciples of all nations. And I think it's important in this day and age to clarify what a disciple is because we are kind of confused. Um, We tend to say go and make Christians, which means uh, tell them about the gospel of forgiveness and eternal life. And once you've prayed that prayer, you're in and you're good to go. And uh, I think Jesus said, no, we're supposed to be teaching people to obey all that he commanded. And uh, so discipleship is this alignment of our life to the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I remember when you spoke, you gave a quote from C.S. Lewis at Amir Christianity. that said, the church exists for no other purpose but to draw men into Christ and to make them little Christ. Right. I-, I thought that was, that was a, a powerful statement. It is. Uh, basically, Lewis goes on and says in that quote that... Uh, uh, not only the church, but probably the universe exists for no other purpose mm. uh, than to bring people to Christ and see them transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so if we are not doing that, no matter what all the other activities we happen to be doing in the life of the church, which is a very common issue, uh, full of activity, but for what purpose? Uh, if we're not fulfilling that purpose, then we're not fulfilling what we're designed to do. You know, many times, uh, Greg, as I'm talking with pastors, leaders, and even guys that are really uh, committed to disciple making and write about it and speak about it, uh, even even in those circles, there's a hard time defining what a disciple really is. Why is it so hard to define? Um, I don't know that it is actually that hard to define. 
Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that that's the, the case, but I think right in the Great Commission itself, Jesus gives us his thumbnail definition of what a disciple is uh, through very three descriptive words of going, baptizing, and teaching. Disciples are those who move out, they go, they head out to, to the people who don't know uh, our Lord and have a passion uh, to do that locally, nationally, internationally, uh, to all nations, as Jesus says. Uh, they are people who have been brought into the life of the triune God, immersed in the life of the triune God, so that our identity is subsumed uh, in that life, uh, in that circle of love, as I like to call it, that we have been folded into. And that's our primary place from which we operate out of that love of God. And then we are to align our lives with all that Jesus commanded. And uh, that, that's obviously a lifetime of uh, of adventure to find out what that all that means, because we will never get there fully. Uh, but it's certainly our intent to uh, take in uh, what Jesus expected of us. So um, I think it's there for us to, to grab quite readily, uh, because Jesus laid it right out there in the Great Commission. Yeah, you mentioned a term, or you've used the term before, self-initiating. What does that mean? Uh, maybe another term you could f use for self-initiating is one that I love that Wayne Codero uses. And he says that we are supposed to be self-feeding. Mm. We are to get to that place where Jesus is so embedded in us that we don't have to keep being um, you know, coaxed and you know, prodded on uh, in terms of our relationship because we have internalized our desire uh, to be what Christ is, uh, wants, wants us to be. Uh, so self-initiating. Uh, is that uh, we become self-feeding. We read the scriptures, we, we pray, we uh, practice some of the core disciplines of the faith of outreach and service and, um, because that's who we have become uh, mm -hmm. in Christ. Yeah, uh, and that's a challenge for our church because so many people are not self-feeding, right? They're, they're waiting right. on the preacher to feed them or the next Bible study and so on. Um, and so it, I guess it requires training to be a self-feeding disciple. It does require training and it requires a tr uh, adopting a training mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to say that many of us are trying to be Christians rather than training to be Christians. <laughs> uh, we sort of kind of, let's, well, let's give it a try. Let's give it the old, you know, um, and we kind of start over every day <laughs> right? And rather, rather than uh, adopting a training mentality that, says, I've, I'm going to build into my life a regimen of disciplines that keep me connected to the Lord and uh, move me in the direction I'm supposed to go. So we uh, say that uh, another way to say it is our core vocation and call is to become like Christ. Everything else is secondary uh, to that. Wow. Now, our churches um, are not filled necessarily with people that are like that. And um and, I, and I'm not throwing rocks at, at the people in the pew. It's more the leadership that hasn't, you know, established uh, that. But uh, why, why I, I know you've talked about this before, that the church is superficial. And what, what is it that causes our churches and maybe the church of the pastor leader that's listening to this to be superficial and not to become these self-feeding uh, type of disciples? Well, I think there's a number of uh, contributing fast factors to that superficiality, but probably at the top of the list uh, is the way we have 
deported our leaders vis-a-vis -vis our congregation. Um, the scripture tells us that uh, our pastors and teachers are to do what? Equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And what we have done is we've messed up that verse quite a bit and said, well, our pastors and teachers uh, are to do the work of ministry right. uh, rather, than, rather than equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so we have created a passivity uh, within our congregations where people are consumers of what the professionals have to offer. And we sort of set it up that way, uh, whether it's worship experience or what we expect of our pastors as caregivers. When we get into difficult circumstances, we expect our pastors to show up and take care of us uh, in our time of need. But we don't evaluate our, the effectiveness of our leaders on the basis of how they are equipping us to actually become mature followers of Christ uh, and uh, do the work of ministry. And uh, that's really what the biblical job description is, but we have bypassed that when we've turned people into consumers um, of what we have to offer. And uh, I would say, I, I call this the dependency model ministry. We have created this uh, childhood dependency upon the parent pastors uh, within the church and the children never grow up <laughs> and leave home. <laughs> and we keep them there. Now, I, I, the analogy I oftentimes use is, now, what would you think of a parent that wouldn't allow their child to grow up and leave home, uh, just kept them there uh, throughout their life? You would say, well, that's really a sick right. <laughs> parent-child relationship. Well, we're so used to this sick parent-child relationship in the church, we don't even recognize it uh, as, as such um, because it's just the paradigm that we are used to. So I, I think that's kind of the number one reason. I mean, I could go through other reasons for the superficiality. But uh, to me, it's the, the way that we've sort of structured the church. And if we're not focused on the mission of the church, uh, then we fall back into this uh, pastor, let's take care of the people kind of thing. And pastor, you take care of me. And that's the emotional contract that we have between pastor and people. Yeah, I, I talk about uh, preaching programs and pastoral care are kind <clears throat> of the three P's of, of what most pastors are doing. Right, and exactly. some of some of that is um, some of that is imposed on the pastor by the expectations of the people, and some of it is we perpetuate ourselves, right? Because sure. we feel good about being the main guy and and the, the the one that comes in and and is able to do all those things, and it, right. it, it would require a complete paradigm shift, wouldn't it? Uh, it certainly would. Uh, the that interlocking set of expectations between. Uh, what people have grown to expect from their pastor and what pastors have grown to uh, say, this is what I need to do to fulfill those expectations uh, is very much there. And and it puts the pastor in kind of a hero role. Mm -hmm. uh, whenever somebody comes out of, on a Sunday morning and they say to you, gosh, pastor, that was the best message I've ever heard on that topic. And what does what does that do inside of a pastor? I gotta go back and work harder the next week. Oh, to get get that uh, that hook, or you show up at the hospital and somebody says to you, "Gosh, pastor, I could have never gotten through this without you." Um, or you get the notes uh, to that effect, and wow, what does that feed? I mean, that just feeds that need to be needed, um, that that hook that's there, and we want to kind of continue to fill that. Uh, when in fact the people of God are supposed to be delivering a lot of that that ministry 
to one another, and we're supposed to be creating the environment uh, where people can be ministers to each other, uh, not uh, are the, uh, there is a sort of a dotted line connection between every parishioner and the pastor. Um, but the dotted line connection should be between parishioners and parishioners, uh, people in their own our own congregations. So if you're talking to a young pastor and he's he's walking into a system of expectations like that, how does he change that? I mean, this is this is a formidable challenge, and I think this is why disciple making is so much easier outside the church because you don't have to deal with all these expectations in the parachurch world. But man, in the in the in the local church, this is a big deal. So how how do you begin yeah. to change that? Well, uh, at the risk of shameless self promotion, <laughs> uh, the uh, book that I wrote called "Unfinished Business: Returning the Ministry to the People of God." Uh, is really on that entire topic of both scratching out the difference between an equipping model ministry and a dependency model ministry, and then how to shift that that transition over time. But uh, one, the leader has to be clear about what their role is, and uh, then you work with your core leadership, however that's structured, uh, to create the expectations with the core leadership as to what your role is uh, as pastor and um, and then begin teaching your congregation o- over time um, from the scripture as to what their role is, what the pastor's role is. And, um, you know, that's, it's a, it's a reestablishing of values over, over a long period of time mm-hmm. when that occurred. Uh, for example, when I was, I, I've gone through this, so I, you know, know what the experience is like, uh, since the caregiving role is oftentimes very much associated with the with the pastor, and you're trying to teach people that uh, that caregiving should be what you provide for each other as the people of God. Um, I know in the church I became senior pastor of a number of years ago, uh, I followed what I called the kind of typical uh, pastor that preached and gave care, and I said to our staff and core leadership. Uh, that we are banning the phrase pastoral care in this congregation. Uh, we will only talk about a ministry of care, and we are shifting that from the senior pastor role uh, to one of the associate pastors. But that their their role is not to do all the care; it's to equip you know people for hospital calling, for counseling, for grief ministry, mm-hmm. and so that people are giving it one to another. It's creating a system within the church of small groups where people are equipped and trained to provide the ministry settings uh, for people so that they can grow and minister to one another. So it's, it's certainly part of the responsibility of the pastor to, in a sense, engineer the structure of the congregation so that that can all happen. Um, and so it's, uh, it's, it's teaching, it's restructuring, it's working with core leadership. Um, to establish things. And admittedly, that's a long-term process. So anybody who wants to make that happen, one has to have some tough skin uh, because you're going to get, you're going to get strong pushback. You're not being a pastor, you know, that kind of thing. That's what we pay you for kind of. Exactly. And, uh, and you have to keep your eye on the ball, Uh, long-term transformation. Um, There has to be a lot of tenacity uh, in, in the heart of, of a pastor to make that shift and thick skin uh, because you're going to get it, you know. You know, another another uh, obstacle uh, to disciple-making, or maybe another way to say it, another reason why churches are superficial, you said is that many times disciple-making is reduced to a program, 
right. and programs don't produce the end result. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I, I make the distinction between a program and a relationship. And uh, discipling is all about relational investment, of, of investment in people's lives walking alongside. The particular model that I promote uh, is small groups of uh, three or four uh, so that there's intimacy and, and knowledge one person inviting two or three others in the context of a disciple and group so that you can get to know each other uh, and walk alongside and uh, really invest in each other's lives. Programs um, have a number of characteristics. Programs tend to focus on information transfer rather than transformation. If I can just get you to know some things, then we make the assumption um, that uh, you actually are being changed, which is, I think, a very false assumption. So uh, secondly, programs tend to focus on one or two people doing all the work and other people coming as consumers, classrooms, worship services, um, you know, teaching settings. Uh, you know, people are basically there to learn from somebody else in a small group setting. You are there to engage biblical content and truth and share how that is applied to your life and learn from one another in that process. So it requires everyone to make an investment uh, versus just the program showing up. And maybe the most important th characteristic is programs tend to be um, synchronized um, and uh, rather than customized. So you have a 10 week program, you're marching people lockstep uh, through content and uh, everybody has to be at the same place at the same time in a program. And then you hope at the end of 10 weeks, something good has happened in people's lives. Whereas in a smaller setting, uh, you are then customizing it to the uniqueness of that individual. You know their story, their journey, their learning styles, their particular weaknesses, their current issues that they are dealing with. So unless we apply truth to exactly where people are living, uh, then you're not going to have the kind of transformation and programs tend not to do that. Right. Now, are programs all bad? I mean, I know you've listed off some things that are typical about programs, but, you know, somebody may be thinking, but yeah, I mean, but isn't there some uh, pro programmatic type of elements that could help a person become a disciple? Oh, sure. Um, yeah. I, in the relational context, I, I say exactly what you just said there, uh, that certainly there are programmatic elements uh, that we use. I mean, I use a curriculum. Curriculum could be considered a, a program, mm -hmm. but it's curriculum used in the context of relationship. Mm -hmm. So we're engaging that content in a very personal, intimate environment and applying it to our lives and sharing our story as a part of it. So, yes, you have a structure of a curriculum. Um, the curriculum carries you through some of the discipleship content. Uh, and so that's, that's certainly you know, um, true in terms of programmatic elements. So, yeah, you can have certainly a structure that you're taking people through. I just want for transformation to occur and actual change in, in people's lives. Uh, it has to stay, you know, intimate. People have to be mutually engaged with each other. Uh, they need to be known in their setting. They need to be held accountable for life change um, that is going on in their lives. And so unless those things are, are taking place. Um, it doesn't seem to me that you're going to have the kind of impact that you want. Right. Do you, in the churches that you pastored, led, uh, did you have a combination of some programs that happened in the church and 
small triads? Was it a combination or was it more one than the other? What did that look uh, like? Yeah, we certainly had that. Um, we had other programmatic elements, large, large church in Chicago. We had, um, of course, we had the public worship service. We had what we called mid-sized communities as a way mm -hmm. to move people from public worship to mid-sized communities, mm -hmm. which were, in a sense, sub-congregations within the life of the church because of the size of the church. Some of it age and stage kind of related, a way for people to get to know each other, um, find others that were kind of like them on the journey. Uh, and then we had we had what we call the traditional small groups, life groups, um, as a way to introduce people to mutual community, uh, groups of eight to 10 to 12 in size. But what we like to say was that we were majoring in micro groups, um, that the destination that we were wanting people to move to mm. were these groups of three or four micro groups is the language we started to use uh, since triads and quads uh, kind of covered that territory. And so majoring in microgroups, we're saying, okay, here, here's the destination. Uh, there's a pathway, you know, for you to move into the life of the community and to your own discipleship. But where we want you to end up um, is in these microgroups, both for your own discipleship, but then you are being equipped as a multiplier as well. You are being equipped to, to disciple other people, to reach out, bring people to Christ and give them the tools so that they could walk alongside others so that they could, um, you know, continue to reproduce as well. Yeah, that's really helpful because I'm kind of vision, envisioning it in my mind, got the worship service and the midsize and then the, these other type of small groups and then the micro groups, and, and we're trying to get them to that place where they can be equipped and they can become these self-feeding, reproducing disciples. And so that, exactly. that that's a good flow there, and I think as a leader – you know, establishing those structures that move people down that line would be really, really important. Uh, one yeah. last thing, um, sure. you, you, as you as we talk about what makes our church superficial, uh, you you talked about um, you know just relying on programs. You talked about uh, you know this kind of dependency model, but but you also, Greg, reference uh, just being the pastor being unwilling to call the people to discipleship. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, it kind of goes back to that dependency model issue of uh, do we like uh, to be liked <laughs> more than anything else? Um, are we willing to uh, lay it out there in terms of what Jesus' expectations are for what a disciple is and in a no-holds-barred kind of way? So Jesus tells us what the standard is. And if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Um, so just stating that. Uh, but I think pastors can be reluctant to do that because, oh gosh, there's that, you know, entertainment church down the street right, that is putting on the show every week and at a level that uh, is you know, very focused on the consumer. And what if I just, if I'm too tough on the message, they'll just leave and, you know, go down the street to that place that's, uh, everybody's talking about these days because of what they have to offer in terms of music and speaking and, and uh, the programmatic elements of video and things like that. So I, I think there can be a reluctance um, to you know, lay out the no pain, uh, no gain, you know, kind of gospel that um, needs to be stated because of fear of losing people. Yeah. You know, that is a real, uh, that is a real fear. And, uh, yeah. and, 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 you know, Jesus, 
he made harsh statements, didn't he, that thinned the crowd. But what yeah. remained were those that would change the world. And um, Greg, thank you so much for sharing this time with us today and for um, just kind of casting these this vision out of disciple-making. I mean, you've been in the trenches. This is not theory to you. You are a proven practitioner, and I just so appreciate your model, your encouragement, uh, your friendship in all of it. And uh, if you're listening today and you think, man, this was really great, this was helpful, then you can get more of this at the Flashpoint Conference. Flashpoint Conference brings together the best practitioners and leaders in disciple-making, provides various models of how to do it. In fact, Greg has been a part of it. Greg, you, you've been a part of this conference as well, right? Yeah, I certainly have. And so, Enjoyed it last year in a couple of different locations. Right. So this is this is a great opportunity for for you as a listener to really get plugged in and get FaceTime with people like Greg Ogden and others. Just go to flashpointconference.com, flashpointconference.com. You'll find there in 2016, we have conferences in Dallas, Atlanta, Houston, and Zambia. So we'd love for you to be a part of it. You can uh, register right there. You can find out what speakers are in the various locations flashpointconference.com for your uh, disciple-making training needs. It's great for you as a leader and for your staff, also for key volunteers. We'll cover skills and strategy both, so it's a great opportunity for us all to get better. Thanks, Greg, again for joining us today. God bless you in your ministry. Thank you very much, Greg. Good to be with you. For more information on events and content, visit disciplefirst.com.